That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's begin with prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will, to comfort us in all our afflictions, and to defend us from all error, and to lead us into all truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we'll pick up with the second commandment today. And in many ways, the second commandment builds and expands upon the first commandment. And let's begin simply by reading it. It's question 274 on page 95. What is the second commandment? The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to or serve them. So, um, interestingly, in many traditions, well, in Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism, what we have here as the first and second commandment are actually just one, the first commandment. They combine the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods, and it just flows seamlessly into this, uh, it's almost like saying, therefore, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. And as you notice as we'll go through this, there's plenty of overlap there's a close correlation between this. What we're talking about here with is idols, images, carved images. Um, and to, but to still get to 10, they, the Catholic and Lutheran tradition splits what we have as the ninth and 10th, or what we have as the 10th into, into nine and 10 about coveting. Um, and it's not hard to imagine why the reformers thought we need to separate and call attention to this business about idols, one of the huge um, efforts of many reformers throughout Europe in the 16th century was to, uh, to get rid of carved images, idols, what they associated with the superstition of um, many aspects of Roman Catholic worship. Um, and so they, and they said, well, this is... <laughs> They, they do this sort of, uh, one of the ways in which they do this is by isolating this as a, as a commandment and saying, you know, look, Roman, <laughs> Roman Catholics, you are clearly in violation of the second commandment. Um, now, the uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, Church also, interestingly, uh, separates these as two commandments. Um, and the Orthodox tradition has its own uh, tradition of iconoclasm, a breaking of icons or images, and um, the opposite of iconoclasm, which is some called iconodualism or iconophilia or something like this. So the Orthodox tradition has its own way of calling attention to this question about idols. And so the second commandment is about making carved images, making any likeness of anything. And I love this sort of in heaven, in an earth, or in the water, which is just to say, anything, anywhere. <laughs> Don't make an idol out of that. Don't bow down or to serve them. So what does this mean? Great question. Catechism anticipates your question in question 275. What does the second commandment mean? God's people are neither to worship man-made images of God or of other gods nor to make such images for the purposes of worshiping them. So it, it isolates this, or it, it distinguishes this in, in terms of worshiping man-made images of God or other gods, and nor to make such images for the purpose of worshiping them. And this is, this is in the language that the, that the scriptures uses of bow, bowing down and serving. Bowing down and serving. So it has to do with crafting, with making images. What do we do 
with the things of the earth, the things in heaven, things in earth and things in the water? What do we do with those images? How do we interact with them? Um, how are we using our hands? How are we creating things with the stuff that, that is in God's world? And then how are we relating to those things in relation to God? How do these things inhabit this space of worship, essentially? So what does our stuff have to do with worship? Right? This is what, what uh, the, the first, but especially the second commandment is calling us to. What are we doing with these things? So we're neither to, make, to worship man-made images of God or of other gods, nor to make such images for the purpose of worshiping them. So to get at this question, what does it mean? The, the, these questions in the catechism walk through. First, what, is, uh, what does Israel and the nations surrounding Israel do with, with these commandments? Um, and it, then it, it will eventually turn to questions about the Christian life of hope and imitating Christ. What does Christ do with these commandments? Um, so let's go to question 276. How did Israel break the first two commandments? Israel neglected God's law, worshipped the gods of the nations around them, and brought images of these gods, idols, into God's temple, thus corrupting his worship. And let's do question 277 as well while we're, while we're on this. Question 277, why did the nations make such images? Israel's neighbors worshipped and served false gods by means of idols, believing they could manipulate these counterfeit gods for their own benefit. So this gets us into some of the things we were talking about last week. Why did the nations make idols? Why does anyone make an idol? And there's lots of reasons, of course. There's, we talked about in one sense, there is a deeply set impulse in the way that God has made the world that um, we cannot but worship something. We are oriented towards worshiping. There's what, however you want to, want to frame it, there's a, a deep sense that, you know, we are not our own. <laughs> there we are... Um, in the hands of forces larger than ourselves, there is something beyond ourselves that is um, caused things to be that they are. There's something beyond our control, um, and, and that affects the way the way that we live. Whether whether that's in, in terms of um, power or, or government or just in the forces of nature, there are these things, these entities in the world that we experience that touch our lives daily that they say, these are, there are things beyond my control. Um, what then do I do with that? How do, I, how do I respond to that? Well, one, as we talked about last time, and, and this, why do the nations make such images? Well, there's a way in which we try to, um, instead of just saying, these things are beyond my control. I don't know what to do with these things. We try to interact with the world, engage with our stuff of the world in ways that attempt to reassert control, a way to um, get the things back under our control. And so the Catechism talks about this in terms of the nations um, making and serving false gods um, to manipulate these gods for their own benefit. And again, whether that what be in terms of uh, financial well-being or um, familial well-being, you know, especially the gods of the gods of home and, and hearth, uh, the uh, ways in which we try to um, use the things of the world in order to um, reassert some sense of control, reassert some way of saying these forces that are beyond my power, this. Uh, these events that I don't know what to do with. How can I reassert some, some control? Um, and so this is the, the, the culture in which Israel is, is, is in, and this is the kind of culture that God calls Israel out of and saying, you won't be like the nations. 
you won't do things this way because they are, they are, um, they are living what it means to be in a fallen world. They are, they are living a disordered uh, way of life. And so God's law is inserted to call Israel out, to call Israel out, not simply of Egypt as a physical place, but call Israel out of Egypt as a way of life, as a way of, as a calling out of, of this disordered way of life. Um, and yet, as we find, old habits are hard to break. Uh, and so as soon as Israel is, is out of the wilderness, as Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the, the law, um, and I guess you could cut Israel a little bit of slack because, you know, they don't know what Moses is hearing up on Mount Sinai. But in any case, while Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving God's law, Israel is down below crafting an idol, a golden calf. <laughs> and a friend of mine says, this is like, um, um, this is like if you, you know, your child runs out into the street and uh, there's a car coming and you dash out and you know, snatch the child right out from death and the kid turns around uh, to, his, to his little toy uh, doll or superhero toy and says, thank you so much for saving me from this, this getting hit by this car. Uh, and you as the, as the parent are like, what? <laughs> Do you not see what happened here? This is something like what, what Israel does and in being uh, saved mightily in this dramatic way um, and then not being able to see it, not being able to um, have any, any sort of recognition that this is, this is the truth of things. This is the way that, um, this is the way that, that the world is. God has ordered, God has created, God has saved. And yet we find, uh, and again we talked about this last time in terms of sin, there's almost, we'll do almost anything to avoid acknowledging the fact that our, our life is in the hands of this God, um, the only God that there is, and our, our life is redeemed, our life is saved at, in the hands of this God. We'll do almost anything to, to um, put the creative and redeeming powers sort of back in our own hands, back in our own grasp. Um, and then, so this is where the, the sort of the idle impulse comes from, to take something, anything that's not God, anything in heaven or, or in the earth or below the earth, and to find some way to, to reassert some sense of control, some sense of power. And this is, what, this is exactly what God calls Israel out. Don't be like the nations, right? Don't be like the nations. I've set you apart. I've set Israel apart as a holy temple, as a holy family, or a royal priesthood, all this, this language God uses to say, you'll be a people set apart. And at every turn, they want to go back. But this question raises for us um, questions about images in general and about making art, making things, crafting things. And so question 278 asks the question, are all images wrong? No. God forbade the making of idols and the worship of images, yet commanded carvings and pictures for the tabernacle depicting creation. Christians are free to make images, including images of Jesus and the saints, as long as they do not worship them or use them superstitiously. So again, this gets us back into the territory of this long tradition of, of what we call iconoclasm. And there's been this because, precisely because this commandment, the commandment not to have other gods, the commandment not to make idols, not to worship other things, is so deeply rooted in uh, the Jewish and Christian tradition, or monotheistic, monotheistic traditions in general, that there is this impulse both towards um, seeing, encountering, knowing God, in and through the things of this world, um, 
how else are we to encounter God? And yet, this corresponding impulse to say, those things are not God. The things of the world are not God and shouldn't be mistaken for God. So we have these two, two sort of occasionally competing impulses that give rise to these conflicts like in the 7th or 8th century in Byzantium about when the Eastern Orthodox tradition debated the use and place of icons in particular. Um, and so we often will have icons. There's one downstairs. And we often have them on the screen here. But this tradition of depicting, writing, uh, creating images that depict Christ and the saints. And of course, as, as this catechism a question calls attention to, shortly, shortly after Moses uh, received the commandments, he then spends uh, a wonderful you know, 20 chapters or so of Exodus telling Moses exactly how to uh, put images and decorate things in the temple, how to use the stuff of creation, how to make the ark, how to make the tabernacle, using very, very precise <laughs> uh, descriptions about what kinds of images, what kinds of, uh, of, of creaturely things should you use in the place of God's worship. So it's clear that that's not an absolute rejection of all uh, images of carved things, of, of man-made created things to be used, not just in general, but specifically in the place of worship. So again, this is a question about worship and a question about the stuff, the things that we have in the world, God's things, God's created things. Now, especially in the, this occurs both in the Orthodox reflection on iconoclasm and in the Reformation tradition, there is the question about, well, okay, God said don't make, don't make idols, and you can, you know, he tells Moses to make, make the ark, and, um, but nowhere in there is there any sorts of image of Christ. Well, now you have this tradition of making images of Christ, and even whether you consider these icons or not, we still have images of Jesus Christ uh, in, in this space. And we have them, you know, they're, they're all over the place. But what are these images depicting? What are, they, what are they doing? There's this deep reflection on what are we looking at when we see an image of, of Jesus or an image of the saints? There is a, so what this introduces is reflection on Christ's incarnation. And a lot of the, a lot of uh, theologians have reflected on this, and they ask, well, God prohibits the, the making of idols, that's clear. Don't make, an, don't make a man-made image of God and don't worship that image. Um, and yet God seemed to create an image of God in Jesus Christ that is not simply immaterial, not simply invisible, a spiritual reality, but actually an image that took on flesh, that took on form, and color, and shape. God made an, an image of himself and made it clear in Christ. God, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Um, and, and so theologians have reflected on this and saying, if that is the case, then that has uh, legitimated, made possible the use and the making of, of icons and images. And so th there's something distinctive about the Christian reflection on Jesus Christ for what we do with our stuff. Okay, great. And yet, the, what, what you might call the iconoclast impulse lives strong among us, as it, as it should. Because what is that iconoclastic impulse doing? What's it saying? What's it worried about? 
what are the iconoclasts worried? The image smashers, the image breakers. What are they, what are they worried about? The image itself will become more than it is. That's an excellent, excellent way of putting that. More than it is. So what is it? So this, this, this raises an even better question. So you have these, it's supposed to be doing something, but if it's doing something more than it is, then it turns into, then it turns into an idol. So when does an image or an icon become an idol? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah, so there's an element of, of faith. So that's that one thing you said. So an element of faith as a... Um, as a personal disposition, as a... Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And the difficulty comes. We. I mean, we're. You're right. We do. There's a. I like the way you're. You're. You're putting this. Um, the motion of love in in the category of almost gravity. Right, almost a weight, like things are going to to flow in their in their sort of weighted yeah, direction. Uh, yeah. Mm. There's an immediacy to it. Which is what the which is what the reformers did. This is what there's a famous book called "The Stripping of the Altars," and this is there's a sort of what people called a a reformed aesthetic, which is if you've been to a church that is is literally white walls, <laughs> and you're you're it's it's its own. It's doing something, right? It is. It's not a non-aesthetic. It's its own kind of image, but it's an it's a way of creating, it's a way of using space, matter, light, time to, um, to say that God isn't in this thing, right? That, that's the kind of, again, the iconoclastic impulse, that there's something. The catechism. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so there's a specific sort of, it's not saying, you know, get rid of all of, all of 
the things. It's saying there's a, there's a right and a wrong way to worship God. There's a way in which you can arrange the, the worship with stuff in a way that leads you away from God, that, that leads you to, to idolatry, which is a sense of trying to get the things to, to be God, right? And mom, mom uh, the ability for, for a mother to hear things in different rooms is just incredible. Uh, but, um, yeah, so God's quite cleared with Moses that there's a specific way of, of arranging the worship. And then we, we come to find in the letter to the Hebrews that... Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, there's a way in which, uh, according to the letter to the Hebrews, um, Taylor was here, he would love to tell us, tell us all about this. Um, and now we'll know if he listens to these online when he misses them. Um, <laughs> that that um, not only are these just sort of arbitrary arrangements in the temple, uh, but in fact, uh, Hebrews tells us that what God tells Moses to do in creating this temple is in some way a reflection of the heavenly temple. What, what worship in heaven looks like. God is instructed Moses to, to image that, to, to make a model of that, a type of that that they'll use to say that, that what happens here in this space um, is in some sense supposed to reflect this larger cosmic heavenly worship that, that is transpiring beyond our, beyond our sort of immediate vision. Um, so there's, there's lots of Wonderful things we could we could go we could go on and on um, thinking about this. Well, how do we use our how do we use the stuff? How does the stuff come into come into our worship space? Um, and here uh, we we're in a church in which that is um, the the iconoclastic impulse is is not as strong as the <laughs> uh, the impulse that says actually what our culture does is seek to remove divine presence from most of our cultural spaces. So uh, traditions like Christchurch are more, more worried about um, the evacuation of divine presence in our worship space as a larger cultural phenomenon. Like we're worried about you know, what, what we might call a secular, a kind of secularization that, that seeks to imagine the world that we inhabit as, as absent of divine presence. And so we're going to say, actually, that's quite, quite the opposite. Uh, in fact, God's presence is here and, and dwells among us in, in rich and in various ways. And by calling attention to the way, the very way in which the building is shaped, you know, in this sort of cross shaped, or the way in which there's, um, there's an increasing sort of um, movement towards God's infinity, say, in, in this in this space, um, there's and there's a, also lots of reflection on the way in which um, the Eucharist, especially, makes God present in ways that are that are say maybe different, but not wholly different than the way God is present in an icon. Um, and so again, there's lots of space here for uh, to reflect on well, what is. Where is God present? How is God present in the world? How is God known to us? And yet, uh, how does God also go beyond that? Where, uh, what else is there that we might say? And some of our later questions are going to, going to get to this. But let's keep, um, keep moving along here. Let's go to question 279. Are idols always images? No. Anything can become an idol if I look to it for salvation from my sin or comfort amid my circumstances. If I place my ultimate hope in anything but God, it is an idol. So if the previous question was sort of asking, um, are all images necessarily idols? <laughs> Are all images wrong? We're saying no, they're not, images are not wrong. 
Um, we can use the things of the world to make them idols, to get them to, to be God for us. Um, but this, this you know, expands on, the, on that question and says, um, well, are we just worried about, in this question about idolatry, are we just interested in images per se? You know, um, square, rectangular depictions with a person's face on them, uh, with colors and lines drawn in, in human form. Is that all we're worried about in this category of idolatry? And this question is saying, no, there's, there's many other ways <laughs> the, that the human heart can, uh, that can come up with idols. Um, uh, anything can, can become an idol if I look to it for salvation, salvation from sin, or comfort amid my circumstances. If I place my ultimate hope in anything but God, it is an idol. Again, we talked a little bit about this last time. Um, there are, you know, a couple of repeat offenders that, that vie for the, the idol factors of the heart, especially money, sex, and power. <laughs> these, these areas uh, of, of human life are just prime for ways in which we can return to these places um, as sources of salvation, of comfort, and hope. Uh, we can we can hope in um, a steady uh, an income a certain level of income a certain level of, of wealth that somehow is always slightly above uh, where our current standards are. Um, we can we can invest our hope. We can try to find salvation um, in the creaturely goods of sex and family and, and family life and all all of the things that go with that. And try to say, if, if this goes well, if I can just get this right, if my family is, is good, then I will be good. Then I will be happy, safe, healthy, comforted. Um, or, if it's some, or, or if it's some sort of um, position of authority or, 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 or rule over something, some, some way in which we could say, if I were just in this place, if I wasn't always sort of... Um, getting looked down upon or, or beat down, or, or if I was in a position of, of power or some sort of rule, then, then I, would be, I would be happy, I would be well off. Um, so there's, there's lots of ways in which, which things besides images can become idols, and um, you, know, you can meet with a spiritual director and, and find, what are the idols of your heart? And, <laughs> uh, those things are often discerned by not only your own sort of inner reflection, but in, through your life with others and um, seeing what sort of things you're, you're naturally drawn to, your sort of proclivities. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> your source of your humility can become a source of uh, can become an idol for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but this is, I think this is exactly right. There's way, I mean, there's, there's nothing which we can't turn it into an idol, right? Even <laughs> uh, devotion to, to scripture, devotion to prayer, seeking spiritual experiences, right, can become its own, it can become its own idol in the, in the ways in which we, you know, we're looking for, you know, hope and, and pleasure in the, ex, in the experience of, of worship, say, or prayer, rather than, than something else, Right? We can we can turn it just about anything into an idol, even uh, lots of good things. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's ask that goes well right into the next question. Um, so let's go to question two eighty. What does the second commandment teach you about hope? It teaches me that my ultimate hope is in God alone. For he alone is God, and he made me. I must not look for salvation and fulfillment in myself, another person, my wealth, or occupation, or status, or any created thing. Only in God will I find perfect love and fulfillment." Again, this is getting us at, this is, uh, this is, and we could add exactly what you're just saying, you know, uh, high high levels of devotion, you know, spiritual experience, um, you know, that sense of, as we, I love it, I love that that phrase, being on fire for the Lord is is still like sort of common parlance and at least youth group culture, you know, like that. That sense very monastic, <laughs> um, uh, and yet those things in themselves—they—if we're looking for for hope in those things—will um, will constantly be let down, right? Will constantly be stuck, or, or th- those things won't actually be conducive towards leading us towards towards God, uh, and in some ways prohibit us from from finding God. So I. I uh, uh, I love about this question is that it it guides our thinking about created things. Right? It says there's there's created things are good. God has made all these things good, and they can be um, rightly ordered with our 
through faith and through the right ordering of the love, all the good things of the world can be used as, as means towards directing us to God, right? There's no sense that uh, the second commandment isn't saying, you know, the world, the, the matter of the flesh is, is evil and corrupt in itself, and so um, it's constantly vying for, for our loves. Saying, no, these are all good things. These are God has created this world good. Um, and, but he's created it as a world, um, uh, what you might say, as, as a world of signs. God has created the world as a, a world, a communicative world, a world in which things um, aren't just inert things, but things become the means, the vessels by which we encounter and commune with God if we let them be what they are, if we let them be created things, right? Things that signify and call us to, to God. And yet this, what does the second commandment teach about hope? It teaches us that our hope isn't in those things. It calls us towards what you were describing earlier as, as the harder way. If the easier way um, is to worship the created things, the second commandment is this part of this, um, you know, what we are calling the iconoclastic impulse that calls us to, uh, as C.S. Lewis would say, further up and further in, right? To not let our affections uh, rest on these things, um, but to, to let these things spur us on towards communion with God. So they teach us about hope, right? This is a commandment. I love that the, the, this catechism reflects on the second commandment in terms of the virtue of hope. Um, and hope properly understood isn't just like, oh, I just, you know, hope I, uh, you know, as Auden, as Auden would say, you know, I hope I find a, a lucky penny today. You know, hope is, about, hope is about life with God in the hereafter, a, a present a sense in which we are not arrived yet, this, the sense that we are, that the human person is a human, is a creature on the way, um, a viator, as Joseph Pieper would say, a person who is in via, who is in route. And our, and our, um, the reality is, is not yet present. It's something that we still push on for. We stretch on towards, towards the mark. Um, and it's, uh, all, of, all of what I'm saying here is, as Father Nicholas is probably thinking, this is all is largely summaries of St. Augustine. <laughs> Um, and his, his sense that the heart is restless until it rests in God. And that restlessness is, is here in the second commandment. It is a way of saying, don't let your affections rest until they rest in something that can truly, truly satisfy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And character produces endurance, and and then endurance produces hope, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, this is the way, the way out, the way into wisdom, right? The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And it's a calling out. Um, and, and that's a movement in hope, right? It's a movement towards hope. The sense of this theological virtue of hope is, a, is a, a statement about where we are in the world, where we are in time, and how in which, uh, wrongly ordered, we can move into, into darkness, yeah. Um, well, th- this is, uh, again, closely tied to the next question. Question 281, how was Jesus tempted to break the first two commandments? Satan tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him, promising him an earthly kingdom without the pain of the cross. Instead, Jesus served and worshiped God faithfully and perfectly all his life. And calls us to do the same. Good. <laughs> um, right, so we, again, for all these commandments, we look towards Christ, and we see Christ as tempted in every way that we are, and especially with this, uh, the temptation to bow down and worship something besides God. Um and at every point, well, and this, this wonderful phrase, promising an earthly kingdom without the pain of the cross, right? Um, and, and, and Jesus, you know, confronts that on both levels. He says, you know, my kingdom isn't just the kingdom of an earthly kingdom. It includes that, but it's beyond that. Um, and yet it, it comes through the cross. And it doesn't come without, there's, this is in the state of, of fallen humanity, the only way towards blessedness is, is through the cross, through the way of, uh, of Easter, through the way of cross and, and resurrection. So we see that in Christ, right? That is the, the foundation of our hope, right? And, that, and as well, there's a call to, to imitation, to follow Christ in the way of the cross and in the way of resurrection. Um, and so the, the cross is a way of, of, the cross is a form of idol smashing, Right? There's an iconoclasm in that move as we follow Christ to the cross. Uh, taking up the cross is, is a way of, of breaking the idols, a way of breaking the idols of our hearts as well as the actual um, enmeshment of our lives in idolatry. Right? Idolatry is in the heart. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of faith and love, but it also is a matter of what we do with our bodies, what we spend our time doing. What, uh, all it's you know, as a Kathleen Norris or somebody says something like, "What we spend our days doing is what we spend our lives doing," <laughs> right? Annie Dillard, thank you. Um, I feel like I heard that recently in a Brazos Fellows. Was that you? I heard that from you. Uh, yeah, somebody is somebody somebody very intelligent has said this recently. Uh, what we spend our days doing is is what we spend our lives doing, right? Um, and that's that's very much a part of this. So how we how we live our lives, what we do with our things, our time, our stuff, is is what we're doing. It's it's, it's either a way of following Jesus to the cross, or it's or it's something else. Okay, last question. Question two eighty two. How will idolatry affect you? If I worship and serve idols, I will become like them, empty and alienated from God who alone can make me whole. I love this. This comes, this is largely um, uh, a summary of the prophet Jeremiah. He says, you know, you worship, you become what you worship. Um, what you worship is not just a, again, it's not just this, what I, this one thing that I do on Sunday for an hour. Um, what we worship, we become. There is a transformation. There's an element in what, of human transformation that's caught up in worship and idolatry. We become that. We become like what we worship. So that means we either become like God, right? We grow into Christ-likeness. We become like God by worshiping God. We grow in the characters that, the, uh, the virtues that that, that are God. We grow in love and, and holiness and all these things by worshiping God. Or the way of idolatry, we become like what we worship, which is 
uh, we become empty. We become simply uh, closed in on ourselves, right? It's like somebody with, a, with an appetite that, that can't feed on something nourishing, right? It, it, you become shriveled. You become you physically and spiritually um, become decrepit. <laughs> and we, we, become, we become like what we worship. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. God is very gracious sometimes in, in uh, allowing you to fail in, in these ways. That, again, those are forms of, of iconoclasm, right? Yeah. 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 Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not God. Right? Yeah, not even close. Um, yeah, yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. Well, let's let's close in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for calling out and breaking the idols of the heart. Um, we pray that you would uh, enliven, strengthen us to follow the way of the cross um, and to follow you and to place our hope in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll begin in just a few minutes.